0: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host Megan Daum. My guest is Rob Wypond, and I'm going to tell you about him in a second, but first, just really quickly, the next Unspeak Easy retreat that I'm going to announce anyway is coming up in May, Minneapolis, Minnesota. May 8th through 11th, we're going to do a retreat. There's a lot of interest already. So if you are interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com and read about what we're doing and get in touch with me and I will send you the information. As always, these retreats have limited space. I really try to cap the participant number at 15, but they're great. So if you wanna do it, let me know. The uh, events in uh, Los Angeles and Seattle sold out really quickly. So if Minneapolis has your name on it, Let me know. The unspeakeasy.com. Anyway, my guest, Rob Wypond, is a Canadian-based investigative journalist who writes about issues related to psychiatry, civil rights, policing, social change, that kind of thing. His new book, Your Consent is Not Required, is about involuntary interventions in psychiatric care, especially those involving inpatient treatment. We associate forcible detentions in psych wards with barbaric practices of the past, but as Rob found out, they're all too common today, and his book shows just how little agency patients often have in their own care, and moreover, how the medical establishment and pharmaceutical industry benefits from as many people as possible being classified as mental patients. In this conversation, we talk about all of that, including a question that was on the top of my mind, which is why, despite this apparent overreach, it's still so hard to get mental health care for people living on the streets. Rob also stayed overtime for a more personal conversation about how he feels about his life and career these days, and how he went from acting in local theater, performing music, and doing various kinds of community work to being an investigative reporter. He also shared his theory as to why Canadians do so well in American late-night television. So if you want to hear that part, go to megandaum.substack.com and subscribe for as little as $6 a month. Otherwise, here is the main part of my conversation with Rob Wypond. Rob Wypond, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. Your book is about what you see as a serious crisis in psychiatric care, which is how quickly patients and their families can lose like all control of a situation once they enter the mental health care system. I, the image of being dragged away by men in white coats, so to speak, and forcibly injected with sedatives. I mean it's something something of a trope, right? We we see it in countless films and I think because it's that's easy to see as something that's not really real or at least something that's happened in the past. It's hard to imagine that it's still going on. But in reading your book, I was still struck by how this is very much an everyday occurrence. So I thought maybe we would start by you talking about what has changed since, say, the 1950s and what in your reporting you were surprised to find out has not changed.
1: Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I find personally most disturbing about public dialogues around forced hospitalization and involuntary commitment, because I think a lot of people who have very strong opinions about it actually have no idea what's going on, what it's actually like to go through that kind of experience today. I'm not sure what people are picturing, um, but yeah, it can be pretty brutal. So I, I thought, you know, Jennifer Mathis at the at that time, she was working for the Baseline Mental Health Center. Said it well that you know we're no longer hosing people down in cages. You know we're yeah. we're no longer like really tangibly torturing them in really obvious ways, as in forcing them into ice cold baths for prolonged periods and then hot water that obviously burns their skin off. We're not doing that sort of thing anymore, and. But what is happening is still quite brutal for a lot of people. And the first thing you to understand is it's different if you, you can be nominally involuntary in that someone just says, you know, we really think you should stay here. So we want to keep you. But, you know, let's talk about. What would work for you and what wouldn't and there's a collaborative environment that certainly happens but the moment you say no the moment you say i don't like that drug i've tried it before it didn't help me or i want something else or i don't want any drugs a battle occurs and so forced treatment today can be still it involves security guards yeah taking control of you physically it involves being forcibly stripped it involves injections of powerful, tranquilizing medications. It can be quite overwhelming and traumatizing, particularly if people have a history of, of trauma or child abuse or sexual assault in their past, where they've experienced disempowerment of that kind already. That's part of what they're struggling with. And suddenly here they are in a hospital, supposedly being helped, and a lot of the same kind of uh, brutality is happening to them.
0: Now, what is the purpose of being stripped? Is that just to make sure you don't have like Weapons on you, or something that you use to hurt yourself? What's the logic there?
1: Good question, because it's not necessary at all. And I think that it's just part of a legacy of wanting to. F- How can I word this? Like in certain states, it's it's considered not legal. It's not supposed to be done. in In most of them, it is required, and. It's done for different reasons. Like, often patients will say, why do you need to do this? And they get different kinds of answers. It's really not clear to me. I have to say, if that's clear anywhere in policy somewhere, somebody should let me know, because I've never really seen it fully articulated, why it's necessary. I think the threat idea is common, that there's this notion that, oh yeah, we see people who've labeled with mental disorders as dangerous, There's also supposedly something around seeing tattoos and identifying features. So if you turn up dead, we're gonna know who you are. There's that kind of rationale's been used before. But I think that really it is much more about exertion of power and control, that it's a reflection, like in the prison system, forcing people. Uh, prisoners not to wear their own clothing, uh, but rather wearing some sort of colored jumpsuit or something to clearly distinguish who the patients are from the guards, and that there's a sort of element of humiliation involved. I think that's there, but, you know, I'm speculating.
0: You became interested in this subject because of a situation that went on in your own family with your father. Can you tell that story?
1: Yeah. It's... It was kind of a surprise, I got to say. I mean, my father was going through a difficult time. He'd had uh, some surgery that had left him impotent and incontinent, so quite devastating uh, at the age of retirement to suddenly be confronting this uh, permanent, essentially like a disability. And uh, so he was understandably going through a difficult period, and he sought help at the local psychiatric hospital, persuaded to go there by my brother and my mother. And he was very promptly deemed to be uh, a danger to himself or others, because it's a very vague criterion, and began to be treated against his will. And it wasn't helpful at all, and so his resistance to it increased, as did all of ours to some degree, our concern, uh, variety of medications really were just sedating and tranquilizing drugs that sort of clouded his thinking. And and I should clarify that this was a career college professor of computer engineering with no history of mental health issues or anything like that. So, and I was aghast at just how quickly he went from that a sort of white educated uh, middle-class person and uh, into certified mental patient being treated against his will. And And so yeah, over the course of about nine months, he was then forcibly electroshocked as well and suffered pretty serious memory loss and debilitation in that process. And it was quite a devastating experience for him and humiliating as well and and, and for our whole family. So after that, I was just left with this overwhelming question as a journalist. As in, wow, if this could happen to my own father, who really had all of the good fortune and supports that anyone would want to have in that kind of situation, you know, who else is this happening to and and what's happening to them and how is this really playing out? And so I immediately started to research, reach out to find out who else this was happening to.
0: I have so many questions about his treatment, but first... You say he walked into the psychiatric hospital. Would it have been different, do you think, if he had gone to a psychiatrist first, for instance? Like, just sat down with somebody, a doctor, one-on-one. Like, how much of a difference did it make that he sort of – did he essentially go to the ER of this facility?
1: Yeah, which is very common, yeah, we're, uh, people are trained to do that. Now, we're all told to do that because it it's not easy to just sort of get a psychiatrist on the spot, right? Yes,
0: that is true. If he could he could wait months and months, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. So one of the reasons we're seeing skyrocketing rates of children and youth, for example, going to ERs with mental health problems is because they're being told to do that in schools. They're being literally trained. Like, If you have any level of distress that's concerning, it lasts up to two weeks, you should go to a psychiatric hospital and seek help. So this was the kind of message that was in our brains at that time. And and it seemed logical to do. To answer your question, though, I don't think it would have been hugely different. Because what I see again and again is people who go to therapists and psychiatrists, even one-on-one, it often is better if you're paying them and they have a stake in you kind of staying in that relationship with them. Maybe you get they get to know you over time, so they have their own read and their own comfort zone on the situation. It can be better, but it often isn't because their standard essentially is if you start to say things like, I'm feeling suicidal or I'm feeling somewhat violent, that for them is a red flag. And right away, often they'll simply uh, call police to take you to the ER. And they pass that issue off to people at the at the psychiatric hospital. So I, I think because he was speaking like that at the time, he was quite in despair and kind of really troubled by his own feelings. Uh, then he would say like, oh, I, I'm feeling this, you know? And so I think it, it wouldn't have played out that much differently, not for long.
0: So what happened after he got there? Like how informed were you as the family as to what was going on? Did it sort of just immediately slip out of your control or was it gradual?
1: Basically, it was my brother and mother who took him in. So I can't speak blow by blow as to the the whole process and that, but it was a very quick process. That was part of all of our shock that he couldn't, It it seemed, and this is not uncommon. So a lot of hospitals are kind of so overwhelmed and overloaded that they'll Basically, the standard for admission is you start saying things like, I'm feeling suicidal or I'm feeling violent. And and then they go, okay, great. And they immediately make you involuntary. And it's either easier for their insurance processes and their admission processes to have an involuntary patient than a voluntary one. So it's not uncommon that this happens. And that's basically pretty much what happened. It was virtually instantaneous is my understanding. And so you know, at, at that point, I think it was collaborative. I mean, we'd, they'd come in seeking help. So I think in that sense, my dad didn't like immediately bolt for the door or anything like that, right? He was mm-hmm. just kind of disoriented and shocked and, and kind of like, oh, okay, that's the way you do it? Like, all right. It, it was a bit like that is my understanding. And then as things played out, and it clearly wasn't helping, his resistance became more tangible as well, as did mine.
0: <laughs> and he ended up receiving electroshock therapy. Now, this is, again, I think something that people don't really understand. Like We have the classic one flew over the cuckoo's nest version of this procedure, incredibly barbaric. And I think that the conventional wisdom, which I guess is not entirely wrong, is that it's become a lot gentler over the decades, that it is, you know, in many cases, effective. I certainly... I know of people who have undergone it and it seems to have worked. I don't know the details, admittedly, but tell us what we're not understanding about the current state of electroshock therapy.
1: Well, it actually hasn't changed very much from the 1950s. In fact, it's more powerful today because they're using more powerful Uh, paralytic agents in the body to prevent the body from rupturing bones the the intensity Mm -hmm. of the shock is so severe that your convulsion can actually rupture bones in your body so they give much more powerful anesthetics and and paralytics today to prevent that from happening but at the same time that means the shocks are more intense because there's higher levels of resistance in your body and your your head. So it's very largely the same. The only thing that was different in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the movie was that they did it while he was awake. It was clearly and deliberately used as a punishment tool. And interestingly, Ken Kesey, the author of the book at the time, really protested that because he knew that it would look very sensationalist. He wanted people, he had actually experimented and had himself electroshocked once because he wanted to find out why people hated it so much. And um, so he knew really exactly what it was like. And he didn't want them to sensationalize them that way. And, uh, and he was right. He foresaw that it's been exploited ever since by the industry to go, oh, oh it's nothing like that today. Oh. But by and large, it is. They just don't do it while you're awake. You know, it's not that. But all the other mechanisms of it are, are largely the same. So it can be extremely damaging. You know, what can you say? It's very controversial because there's an industry of of psychiatrists out there that really like to employ it as a tool because it has immediate impacts. As a neuroscientist said to me, yeah, pretty much like hitting somebody over the head with a hammer, they'll often have a sort of euphoria afterwards. And you can see that in patients, and it happened with my father. So for a week or two or three weeks, maybe, you'll have that effect. But then by and large, you, your memories start coming back, you just re-entrench in that depression, it's most often used for, you'll re-entrench in that depression quite quickly. And that's what all the evidence shows. And that's what the FDA, a scientific advisory committee visited this not so long ago. And and that's what they concluded too, that there's a high likelihood of brain damage occurring and certainly memory loss and sometimes permanent, fairly extensive memory loss is fairly common with this procedure. So yeah, it's disturbing that it's still used.
0: Yeah. And I want to get into some of the specific stories that you tell about people like mentioning that they have suicidal thoughts to somebody in what they think is a casual manner. And then next thing you know, that person has called or, you know, a neighbor calling in for a wellness check. And the next thing you know, the the person is being you know dragged off to the hospital somewhere I think I, I was really struck by how these just like little ways of conveying your distress can result in this massive overreaction. But before we get to that, because I think this is really probably at top of mind for a lot of people it was for me, you argue that the idea that there are not enough beds that there are not enough beds in psychiatric hospitals for people. And that is why we see see so many mentally ill people on the street, for example, is not true. So take us through your argument there.
1: So there are a few pieces to that. And essentially, let's be clear that it's We do know that a lot of people are seeking help and can't get it because beds are overloaded, is the term I use, rather than shortage. So this is still occurring. And one of the reasons for that is because so many people are being coerced and forced against their will. They're considered the priority people. So they're occupying all these beds. So I just want to Speak to the people out there who have seen, have witnessed themselves getting turned away when they're trying to find a bed. We do know that goes on. That said, what I show, and and I'm not making this up, this was uh, the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors commissioned a study on it because they knew, as indeed anyone who looks at these issues on the ground in communities knows, that state mental hospitals are really not the full story. So, certainly, there's been a, a huge decrease in the number of state and county hospital beds from the 1950s to today. There was a massive movement to close these very large institutions that housed housed thousands upon thousands of people and to move towards smaller facilities and integration in community. People often say, oh, but that wasn't funded. No, but it was funded. It was just funded in a very certain way. And anyone who works on the community at the community level has seen this and so the mental health program directors looked at this and they they came up with some numbers which were also subsequently affirmed by the substance abuse and mental health services administration and that is that there's a been a massive increase in smaller types of facilities or, or at least not a very big diminishment, sort of depending on which grouping you're looking at. But so for people to understand right now, inpatient hospital-like facilities are also in private psychiatric hospitals. They're in general hospital psychiatric wards. They're in residential treatment centers. They're so there's in nursing homes, there's specialized beds for people with serious mental illness in nursing homes. So there's a variety of those types of facilities. And then there's been a huge growth in 24-7 long-term beds in residential facilities of different kinds, like assisted living facilities, supportive homes, group homes, a whole range of smaller facilities out there. And these are largely unregulated. They're they're not well tracked. But the best numbers we have suggest that if you add all of these up, we've got more beds, maybe a lot more beds than we ever had back in the 1950s or 60s.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, then the obvious question is, why are there so many clearly, mentally, severely disturbed people on the streets, in big cities? And why can't we get off them off the streets? If it's so easy to get oneself committed against their will, why is it so hard to find help and inpatient treatment for somebody who clearly, desperately needs it?
1: So first of all, we have to be clear on how many there really are, the percentage. So according to the National Institute of Mental Health, as of today, 50% of Americans before the age of 18 will have had a clinical diagnosable mental disorder. Yeah, that's
0: stunning. Okay, can we just pause there for a second? (laughs) Say that again, because I think people are not going to believe that.
1: So according to the National Institute of Mental Health and, well, basically, these are are our current national statistics, Mm -hmm. best data we have. According to them, 50% of children and youth before the age of 18 will have had at least one clinical diagnosable mental disorder. So that means lifetime prevalence. So meaning at some point in your life, you will have had a mental disorder for adults is approaching 70 or 80% and I saw a study just the other day published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It was in New Zealand. Nevertheless, their number was 86% before age 45.
0: Okay, so, but wait, does that mean you went to a doctor and, or, and they gave you this diagnosis or you just like no, were on that, social, social what, media one, one day and, and you said, I, I feel <laughs> this? Right. Yeah. that, that right. That's the
1: trouble with these statistics is they're so bogus, right? They're so out of control. And as a society, we really need to get them under control. So what these are is they're usually based on phone surveys, um, combined with some other sort of calibrating technique, like meeting some percentage of those people in person and running through A 15 minute, like more, uh, you know, diagnostic tool. But the thing is, that's how diagnoses are done. Like, you need to understand, right? Everyone needs to understand there's no science to making a mental health diagnosis. There's no science to diagnosing a person with major depression or schizophrenia, even. Like, these are not really clearly laid out processes where you can go, that's the way to do it, and that's not the way to do it. So, these are very fuzzy. Uh, Difficult to determine diagnoses. And people will immediately go, Well, it's obvious when a person is depressed. Well, it's not because you know what? Anxiety creates depression. Depression creates anxiety. They're both associated with having beliefs that aren't real. You might be anxious about something that you're not supposed to be, or you're depressed about something that someone else doesn't think is real. So they're both associated with delusions. Well, guess what? That's kind of a common symptom of schizophrenia. So they're all over the map. And they find that these studies, in, in studies where they're testing, even highly expert, trained psychiatrists in doing diagnostics that they don't agree with each other very often. So these statistics are pretty unreliable, but they're out there and they're commonly used. And they get used in this kind of way. So suddenly someone will do a study and go, oh my God, 50% of people who are homeless are mentally ill. <laughs> and we think, oh my God, 50% of people in prisons are mentally ill. And there's like, oh my God. And people use it to generate you know, political traction and funding and everything else. But a lot of case, you, you have to step back and go, well, what are the actual numbers in the general population? And the numbers in the general population, are equally high, equally astronomical. So that's a really important context for all of our discussions. So when we look at homeless populations, yes, there are people who are really struggling out in the streets with a variety of different types of mental, emotional struggles, I like to call them, right? Without necessarily applying a a diagnosis on on it, that's clear. And, And so the next part of that is why are there so many more? Well, because there's so many more homeless people today. Right. So that homeless rates have gone up a lot over the last 30 years or so. So and it's more prevalent in certain cities. So it's more visible. It's more of a problem right across the board. The third thing to keep in mind, and it's very important, is being homeless can drive you crazy. Right. It's really, really stressful. So you'll if you I challenge anyone to go out and live like a homeless person. If you're not homeless, you've never experienced to go out there and live homeless for a few days or a week and find out how quickly you're going to meet the clinical criteria for an anxiety disorder or depressive disorder or start abusing a substance in some way, overusing a substance in some way. And suddenly, you're going to be getting that diagnosis as well. And one of the ones I like to highlight, too, is it's very important to know that when you lose sleep, even one night of sleep, 50% of people start experiencing hallucinations and higher levels of paranoia and fear. So if you're experiencing chronic sleep deprivation, the chances that you're going to start hallucinating are actually pretty high. So it's, it's Kind of inappropriate to to say, oh, that person's homeless because they have a mental illness. Maybe, but in a lot of cases, it may be that the homelessness is kind of driving them crazy.
0: Okay. Well, all right. Do you live in a big city? I'm curious. I know I you're have, from Canada. Yes, right now, okay. I am. Yes. Yes. Okay. Because I mean, I I will grant you that the the homeless that are the most visible are not necessarily the majority and we definitely see those people like we the, the people who are acting the most obstreperously are the ones in our direct line of vision and that is what we think of when we think of homeless people and in fact i had a couple of years ago i had a guest who had been homeless for several years and he talked about he, what what you just described is very consistent with with what he was saying that said there are definitely. I mean, I I would imagine, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I just speculating. But it seems to me that the vast, vast majority of people who are on the streets um, have, you know, m- mental illness and or drug addiction, and those things are playing off one another. I mean, the, the the point, and I we don't need to dwell on this, but the the point is, I think, like people wonder why are we not allowed? All we hear from you know, municipal officials in big cities is like, well, we're not allowed to forcibly remove these people from the streets because that's not legal. We can't do that. But your entire book is talking about the fact that it's very easy to get forcibly sent away and put into a facility. So like, how do you square these two things?
1: I want to be clear that, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't people in the street. And a lot of people in the street who are really mentally and emotionally struggling in different ways. I'm just trying to highlight that it, we need to be careful with that chicken or versus egg sort of element about where we're ascribing "quote unquote" blame. Like, are they really struggling? Because that was that's this precondition of of their in their brain, and now they're homeless, and or is it because they're homeless that all sorts of problems that they might have had are being exacerbated? or outright created that they might have had and people get driven into addiction by living on the street. So I'm just trying to highlight that we should be careful when we talk about that overall politically about what really the problem is or the root of the problem. But to your question around the, the laws, yeah, we absolutely have the laws the lo- The laws are very broad. The reason it 's continuing is because we 're continuing to have a very serious affordable housing problem and all that 's associated with but it 's also because our current model doesn 't work. Our current approach isn 't helping at all, and that is it 's a forced treatment model, so we do round these people up a lot and and a lot of times they actually seek help too at hospitals themselves, but these drugs don 't really solve anyone 's problems they 're really just By and large, in forced treatment, the main drug given is antipsychotic tranquilizing medication. So that's all it really does, is it can maybe sort of lower a person's level of immediate sort of hyper-response, if they might be having that, and bring them down to a more sort of sedated level of activity. But over the long term, that can have actually a lot of negative effects in terms of their functionality and capacity to think clearly and and, and things like that. So basically the current model isn't working. We'll lock somebody up in a hospital for a few weeks, give them these tranquilizing drugs up. Maybe in a lot of cases, people who are homeless are actually already on psychiatric medications. So they may adjust the dose or whatever, hopefully get them feeling a little better because they're off the street for a little while. And then they're kicked back out again and really nothing has changed. Or, and this is what I talk about in the book, They're getting funneled into a highly coercive environment. From the hospital, they're moved into a group home or an assisted living facility where they continue to be forcibly medicated. And often they aren't liking these medications. So a lot of people can also end up homeless because they're trying to escape forced psychiatric medication. And that was something that indeed, the people who developed housing first found, that a lot of people on the street were demonstrably trying to avoid forced treatment. And that's part of why they were on the street. And so they developed this notion of, well, let's just give people housing without forcing them into treatment. And that has actually proven pretty successful.
0: You know, I want to run through some of these examples of people who, you know, expressed fairly banal levels of distress and ended up in pretty severe situations. I mean, these are great anecdotes because it's almost impossible to believe. So you write... A female student told you she was having an affair with a much older professor. And when she threatened to tell his wife, he called 911, expressing, quote, concern about her emotional state. She was detained for two weeks in a hospital and became too afraid to say anything to the man's wife. Another case a middle aged man returned from his mother's funeral and narrowly avoided forced hospitalization. The 911 caller turned out to be a friend who was himself in treatment for an extreme anxiety case. There was, there's also examples of people ex- expressing distress on social media, YouTubers, TikTokers, that sort of thing. And that's a world where it's very fashionable to talk about your mental illness uh, in a lot of corners, and they end up getting people calling on them. These are incredible stories. And, and I didn't, I, I wasn't trying to make an abrupt transition here from what we were talking about before, because I think it's related. I mean, there's this incredible irony that... Like resources are being taken up on these basically needless cases and really needy cases are being overlooked or just there's no room at the inn kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And people are being trained to do this. We can't emphasize that enough. You're, we're being told all the time, oh, monitor your friends for these kinds of problems and distresses and make sure they seek help and seeking help for anyone who doesn't isn't flush with money and able to hire a private therapist it means often checking into a to a local hospital, or it means calling nine someone calls nine one one to say, well, they need help, and the police come and take that person to this to a psychiatric hospital. So that's often what's playing out, and it, often with the best of intentions. So a lot of people will call nine one one, assuming that's the best thing you could do for someone. Oh, there's a you know, and and it does it is does relate because people do it to homeless people all the Time. Oh, there's a poor homeless person looking like he's in distress. All kind of call nine one one. It's not always like people doing it with negative attitudes towards homelessness. Often they think this is the best thing that could possibly, possibly, be done and help. So yeah, and it's rampant throughout our society right now. You know, I'm showing it happening in workplaces, you know, in school systems, all over the place, and it's it's really common. And and of course. Part of the problem here is once you arrive at the psychiatric hospital, as we talked about before, it's really not that hard to get labeled with any kind of mental disorder because 80% of us supposedly will have one at one point in time, even the stress of simply whatever got you there. Often people are going through a difficult time when this happens. It's, it's not usually that, oh, they were just happily whistling happily down the street. right. There may be something going on in their lives that is making them anxious or upset or depressed, and they end up at the hospital. Now their anxiety amplified even further, so their behavior is showing that, and it becomes very easy for the psychiatrist there to think, oh, Oh, this person does look like, like they have a serious mental disorder. Perhaps just to be safe, we'll keep them for a few days, for a few weeks. And that's how it plays out. And depending on the jurisdiction you're in, before you even get an independent hearing, you can be detained for a matter of days or even a couple of weeks in some jurisdictions.
0: Yeah. And you have a, a chapter called Schooling Children to Become Mental Patients. And this is an incredible chapter. There are some moments that were stunning in here. You talk about a study of 35,000 Medicaid-insured children, and I think that's probably a key detail here, Medicaid-insured children. So these would be poor children. And this study found that before their first birthday, 0.3% of babies we're already being given at least one psychotropic drug. Let's just put a pin in that for a second. By age four, 2% of children were taking psychotropics. By age seven, 10%. Okay, let's just back up. Babies, why would a baby be given psychotropic drug?
1: Well, my answer to that is that's just an example of how out of control and kind of crazy, this sort of diagnostic framework we have and the medical model of it. So the logic that these Uh, mental health professionals will use is they'll look at a baby that seems, oh, a little bit more sullen than the other babies that we typically see. And they have this sort of medical model they've been trained in that even though there's very little substantive to hold it up, the notion is there might be some sort of biochemical thing happening and we don't want it to get worse, so we're gonna intervene early. It's called early intervention. It's a whole mass movement right now in mental health, the early intervention movement. It is to get to kids as young as possible and prevent these problems from getting worse. As I argue in the book, I think that's happening because the, the current model doesn't work. Giving these people drugs at any age doesn't really help the vast majority of them very much at all. And so this is just the new mode is, oh, well, the reason is because we've got to, we got to get it early. And so now they're going all the way back to infants to get this. And that's forced treatment, right? At a, at a terrible level. Because obviously no child could ever consent to this. So even if the parents are consenting, really this is an act of forced treatment of a child but you'd have to ask the doctors really how they can justify it because i sure can't
0: well and i wonder too if there's some kind of financial incentive because th- these are medicaid patients like are, is, are there issues around coding i mean you i think you talked in the book at one point you know a clinician has to give an actual diagnosis there has to be a diagnosis code in order for insurance to pay right so there's incentive to pathologize and diagnose. So I wonder if in this case, that's playing a role, particularly in the US. Yeah,
1: I I mean, absolutely, it could be, right? Like, I mean, one of the things I like to highlight for people too is, yes, as I talk about in the book, there are cases of really blatant profiteering going on, there's no question, and, and corruption, and kickbacks, and bribes, and all of that, that's widespread. Nevertheless, in these kind of cases, uh, also, sometimes people are just, they're making a livelihood. So that psychiatrist, that therapist, whoever they are, even if they're not blatantly profiteering, they're still making a livelihood from diagnosing people and giving them treatments. And so, again, that could be playing out with the best of intentions, that that psychiatrist, just their particular worldview on on what's needed in this circumstance. And that plays out then in a, in a public system as much as it does in the private system, that piece of it. But yeah, as I said, you, you, you can't ask me how on earth that's happening. Like To me, that's absolutely scandalous. You know, it should be in the news every day. I don't believe any, any child, any infant should be on a psychotropic drug. These are powerful drugs. They're in no way studied or approved for use in that population. In my opinion, any doctor doing that should be losing their license.
0: We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. And join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. We hear a lot now about a mental health crisis, especially around COVID. But even before that, there's the, the data around young people, teenagers having Pretty, pretty notable depression, anxiety, that sort of thing. The, the numbers are pretty staggering. Having done this reporting, what do you think about that kind of trend, quote unquote? Do you think that it, we've just changed the way we talk about things like depression and anxiety? Or do you think that this is like real in a lot of cases?
1: Great question and difficult to resolve probably both right it's probably both and that that we're seeing definitely we can absolutely track it an expanding set of ideas around what constitutes clinical depression or clinical anxiety absolutely going on at the same time there's a lot to suggest that perhaps People are experiencing more stress in their lives, uh, more fear, more anxiety, about the future that could be pretty deeply affecting them, and particularly among children. I, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the use of social media can be associated with pretty serious impacts on, on children and youth and, and their outlook on the world and how comfortable, safe they feel in their kind of social lives and in, in terms of their own self self-reflective self-esteem and so forth. So I think there's a lot to suggest that there's something going on. But it's also important to recognize that we are massively training these kids to think this way. We're totally got educational programs going on all over the place to say, if you're in distress for a week or two, you could have a serious mental disorder. You need to see a professional they're absolutely being coached to do that and that's having a huge impact out there.
0: Yeah, it's so strange. We're going to I'm going to keep you uh after as I've been doing lately and talk to you about how you feel about the age that you are. So I don't want you to reveal your age, but are you of the generation where that just was not the case at all? It was very different? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I say this to people all the time because people often will ask me when I'm interviewing them, hey, were you ever forcibly treated? Have you ever been in the system in any way? And I'll say, well, I'll tell you, if the, if the system was a, as aggressive in my day and my childhood as it is today, absolutely. I don't have any doubt that I would have had all kinds of aspects of my behavior. When I was growing up in youth, I was creative. I was rebellious. I was experimenting with all kinds of behaviors and drugs and all sorts of things that, that clearly would have gotten me flagged to, to the counselor, or the therapist, and then into this kind of system, you know, and I certainly had friends that were, but it wasn't nearly as aggressive then as it is now.
0: And to what do you attribute these changes? Is it as simple as the rise of these psychotropic drugs? I mean, was it in the eighties that Prozac came around? Was that really the turning point?
1: Yeah, I I think so. All the evidence we have sort of links it to the drugs. I don't think it's only that now. I think it's running more on on the steam also of of non-drug therapists kind of buying in too, because they're seeing, well, all this funding's coming there, we need our piece of that pie. And so there's this way in which kind of everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and it's become a bit of a trend, right? It's a social media trend, as you already pointed out, to self-identify as having a mental illness of Mm -hmm. some kind and give yourself a label and it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I saw a great article in Psychology Today about it just the other day saying, you know, kids seem to, it kind of excuses things in a way to go, oh, like, yeah, maybe I'm not a bad person, maybe I have a, a mental illness for trying to sort not that I, you know, not that I'm suggesting they were doing something bad as opposed to that, right? Just that this is the cycle a child or youth may be in when they're they're criticizing themselves for their own behavior and then they find this as a, oh, this is a nice thing that can kind of help people sympathize with me and so they may embrace a diagnosis for that reason. So we're seeing these kind of multiple effects going on right now in our culture, but I do think the driver was originally and and continues to be financial. And that started with the rise of Prozac in the late 80s and early 90s, and then a sequence of billion-dollar selling drugs. I mean, stunningly, it wasn't that long ago that the the number one profit-making drug in the country was an antipsychotic medication. I mean, that's a drug that previously only a tiny portion of the population ever would have taken. And and for a while there, it was the number one selling drug in America. So that's a really significant shift.
0: Okay. Talk more about that. What is that drug and what's the story there?
1: Well, it was Abilify, which now there's a, a wider variety of sort of competing drugs and generic drugs, which is why it's been kind of partly toppled from its perch. All these drugs go through an arc when they're, when they're brand name drugs being marketed. And then when they go off patent after a certain number of years, and then generic drugs enter the market. So there's this sort of arc to all of that but essentially one of the reasons that certain antipsychotics have become more common is because they're being used for behavior control so they're widely used in nursing homes right now there's been a ton of exposure of corruption by the department of justice and other investigators in kickbacks and bribes being used to increase the use of these drugs in nursing homes across america it's even worse in canada i might add which is interesting because it's more of a public system there so there's just this They really like them for behavior control. These drugs do make people docile, very passive, very obedient. That's their predominant effect at at a certain dosage level. And they're used in the prison system as well, extensively for behavior control, which is one of the reasons I argue why we're hearing so much about, quote unquote, mental illness in the prisons. Again, not that there aren't people really struggling with really serious issues there, but. Prison administrators really like these drugs for wider use in prison Mm -hmm. populations, and other people have examined that issue. And then the big thing, the big huge market right now is community treatment. So we've got a massive move on for this thing in America called assisted outpatient treatment. It's outpatient commitment. So you're considered safe enough to be living on your own in the community, but they still want to forcibly drug you. And often these will be long, long acting antipsychotic injections. So a single injection that can last for weeks or even months in some cases. And this is a huge burgeoning market right now.
0: Wow. Because I feel like I've heard of Abilify being used as almost like an add-on if people's antidepressants aren't working. You're right. Does that ring a bell?
1: Yeah. like I I only ever saw one study. I don't know how many more there have been, probably not that many, but yes, somebody did a study showing, oh, Abilify can amplify the effect of an antidepressant in a certain way. We don't really know why, but there you go. And people started to run with it. And I will say this, like, One of the things that's common with depression is that it's actually associated with anxiety. So the two are very tightly related. So they do find often that giving a depressed person a sedative can actually lift their energy rather than diminish it. And so I'm guessing that's because an antipsychotic is also a tranquilizing medication of sorts, that that's kind of what happened in a certain subpopulation that where their depression is driven more by their anxiety, they may find some sort of benefit from it. And it, but it's important to know too, we, we get into a hazy area here where we're, we're talking about what the science says about voluntary patients, patients who are eagerly wanting these medications and, and finding even the, uh, just a little bit of alleviation of their problem is something that they're more than willing to put up with all the adverse effects from. That's a certain group. What I show in my book is that's not the group that's being forcibly treated. So we have this whole other group that's being compelled to take those drugs when they're saying this isn't making me feel better. I hate the adverse effects and they're still being forced it and we need to distinguish that because we have no science on those people. There's nothing to show that forcing abilify on anybody actually helps them.
0: And are there patient advocate groups coming up? I mean, th- what you're identifying, it seems like a massive scandal, frankly, a medical scandal and I'm wondering like what kind of efforts did you uncover in your in your research, are there sort of grassroots organizations or sort of coalitions of clinicians who are fighting back? Like, what's the resistance to all of this?
1: Well, after my 20 or so years of research into this off and on, I I knew that there are untold numbers of people out there who are really, really, really traumatized by their experiences being forcibly treated but they're not well organized at all. That voice is not heard and they're not interviewed. There's studies that show this, that rarely do we even, news journalists will rarely interview a uh, person with a mental disorder as part of an article about a mental health issue. And if they do, it's almost never someone who's been forcibly treated. So these people don't really have a voice across their society. They're often in hiding. They're they're just not really well organized. So what we're having now is there is a new trend that is kind of exciting, and that is that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities went through a massive years-long consultation process, both scientific and, and political, and ultimately declared that that people with mental disorders, labeled with mental disorders, should have the same rights as any other person with any other kind of disability or indeed anyone without a disability. So upholding their fundamental legal rights. And this has been huge because now the broader disability community, and by that I mean people who are in wheelchairs or dealing with blindness or, or hearing impairment, all of those people now recognize also as oh okay yeah like a a mental health issue a mental disorder label is also a disability and so we're we're brothers and sisters together and and that has really started to shift the public dialogue in that community, at least. So broader disability rights organizations are now more regularly speaking out to say, hey, we should uphold the rights of people who are getting labeled with mental disorders as well. These mental health laws are really abusive and really harsh for a population that does not deserve that kind of treatment and doesn't benefit from it. So that's what we're beginning to see. But it's really in the beginnings right now, Well, really even... The ACLU, for example, had for some years gotten out of the issue of pa- uh, psychiatric patients' rights and it 's only in the last few years that they 've reopened up a di- disability rights division and have somebody there who really gets these issues and is starting to kind of show some activity on it and that 's just an example of where we 're at overall that 's not a hit on the ACLU that was reflected across our society there was a certain full on buy into the medical model and the notion that these people. You know, need to be forcibly treated, and they're going to be happy when they are, and it's that's really never been the case, and and now yeah, well, I'll hope to see a shift. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah. it is fuzzy. Yeah.
0: And I'm thinking, so I'm I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense, but I'm also wondering, is there any hope, like in terms of offering alternatives? Because we know that a lot of people are being medicated unnecessarily and or inappropriately. At the same time, you and I, I'm sure, both know people personally who, for instance, are diagnosed with schizophrenia or something like that, and they have to be on their meds. And if they're not, some really bad things start to happen to them and those around them. So how do you handle that? Because some people really do need to be on their medication.
1: Well, let's clarify, first of all, too, that um, when somebody's being forced, there's really no evidence, like in aggregate. So everybody, we all have anecdotal stories, but in aggregate, we don't have evidence that forcing someone to stay on those medications against their will is actually sort of helping them or stabilizing them or anything. There's no, no compelling evidence that way. So then we're just talking again about voluntary patients who say that. The other thing to keep in mind is, is these drugs over time have all sorts of long-term impacts on the brain that make them very difficult to get off of. So when people do go off them, yes, they'll have all sorts of rebounds, psychosis, and all sorts of difficulties. We need to be more mindful of that as a culture about helping people get off these things. Now, this is not my area of expertise, and it's not something that I go into in great depth in the book, but there's been a ton of research going back centuries around alternative approaches to this. And in fact, you know, Bob Whitaker famously shows in, in a number of his books that it looks like the World Health Organization studies had found that people in countries where we don't have modernized mental health systems, people with schizophrenia and psychosis tend to do better over the long run. There's a lot of evidence to suggest mm-hmm. that people who avoid these medications or do manage to taper off them tend to do better. And there are alternative approaches out there. And one of my Real shout outs out there. I wish that non drug therapists would get out of the bed of the psychiatric industry and start speaking out again because they used to even just 20 years ago, I could call up any psychologist any psychotherapist, any counselor, and they would rant and rave about the problems of forcibly drugging people or even of these medications as a whole for anybody and say, hey, there's this great therapy technique. There's this, there's that. But they don't do that anymore because basically the pharmaceutical industry and the psychiatric industry is very smart in figuring out how to incorporate them into the medical model and into the diagnostic framework and all of that. And now all of their livelihoods are dependent on staying within the framework, as we talked about earlier. Now, a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor, they also often can't bill any insurer without using the psychiatry's diagnostic framework, and all of that comes with that. So this is a problem right now that there's really again, politically not strong voices out there that are putting a countervailing position forth and really boosting this. And also, I need to say, and I examine this in my book, the medical model industry is constantly suppressing these alternative approaches. They don't want them to become popular because it really is competition. And that's something uh, that book uh, by another book by Robert Whitaker, Under the Influence, uh, it's called, where he looks at the history of the sort of guilds and how they fought with amongst each other, the how the American Psychiatric Association fought with the non-drug oriented professional guilds and managed to sort of seize control of how we treat the men- the quote unquote mentally ill today.
0: When you were doing your reporting, who was the most resistant to your questions? Like what kind of, which, which organizations, which kind of people? Did anybody say, eh, you shouldn't be, this is not worth your time? Oh,
1: yeah. Um, anyone that tries to do research in this area, like me, quickly finds out that the position, the mainstream position is do not talk about this. Do not even talk about it. Do not interview anyone. Like I've been explicitly told in the midst of threat at my job by these people, you should not be interviewing anyone that we've ever psychiatrically hospitalized because they're psychotic, they're crazy. And what you're doing is legitimizing their position and they start demanding their rights.
0: They would say that in so many words.
1: And that's literally the, yeah, literally that in so many words and not once, but many times. This is the predominant position they'll say off the record. And one of the main reasons is, they don't want you frightening people. Their whole model is still based on people not knowing this because when people know it and they know this threat, they often won't seek this kind of help. They're very afraid. And of course, the predominant message out there is seek help. Don't be afraid, right? So so there's a real conflict going on. And I have no doubt right now that there are many, many psychiatrists out there and other mental health professionals are just like, get rid of this guy, you know, stop this. And I show how this has happened to many people before me, that the higher your credibility in this space, the more likely you're gonna get that kind of blowback. So I have examples in the book of very high profile people, really, you know, their entire careers kind of being derailed because they dared to speak out and say, hey, these drugs are dangerous and we probably shouldn't be, forced, we'll be forcing them on people.
0: What is your advice to somebody who really does feel like they need help? What can they do to get that help without winding up in one of these situations that you describe?
1: My main thing is be aware how easy and quickly you can lose your rights in the professionalized environment. There are a lot of different ways that that can end up playing out. And you need to be aware of that so that you're clear about what you should and shouldn't say and what kind of risks are being presented. Even ask the particular, if you're voluntarily seeking help, ask them, what are the types of things that I might say that might get me forcibly hospitalized? Because ask they the often will tell Ask the provider that
0: question. You. Wait, you're saying literally ask them? Like, oh, absolutely. Level absolutely
1: them. ask them. Yeah. Because responsible doctors will tell you. A lot of them do right up front. Even before you ask, a lot of them will disclose, look, I have to tell you right now that if you tell me that you're going to do X, Y, or Z, I'm basically going to have no choice under my licensing or, under the policy of this hospital or whatever it is but to lock you up and so you need to know that and so i hope that we can develop a collaborative environment where you will still feel safe. Telling me that if you're what you're really feeling, but it's also a flag to that person, like be careful. And so you should absolutely ask that. And particularly, I want to highlight if you're ever calling 988, because they do have a series of flags right off the bat. I don't even think it's safe to call 988, frankly. Wait, I don't
0: know what 988 is. I never heard that. That's like 911 for psychiatric emergencies? That's
1: right. So 988 is the new expanding national number in both the US and Canada, in fact, it's coming to Canada as well soon, that you can call for help to just talk to somebody. The problem is they're incarcerating people at a pretty high rate. It's the number they're giving is about 2% 2% of calls, which they say, oh, that's really low. That's really low. Well, that, that seems pretty high to me. A one in every people. fifty calls. Yeah, because most people calling it have suicidal feelings. That's why they're calling because they want to talk to somebody about it. But suicidal feelings are one of their main flags. So it becomes very blurry who this is going to happen to and who not. I've seen it all over the map, uh, what happens and how this plays out. But what it is, is they'll, they can actually they contact 911, your call gets traced, and police will show up and take you to a psychiatric hospital. And their rate on this is about 2%. When I looked at the data, I put it much higher. I don't want to go into all the details right now to you know qualify it, but I'd say you can look at my website and, and find the data yourself and kind of make your own determination about it but we're talking more broadly about the risks of disclosure here and that's the environment we've created so i'd say always ask if i what if what if i say this or that what are the risks going to be when you're working the professional and then yeah otherwise i'm saying we got to get back to helping each other out get out of this professionalized environment hey when people are under stress Often, even if you think that they're psychotic or schizophrenic, often, you know what, something is bringing them to a stressful peak in the moment that's really precipitating a crisis. Talk to them. Find out what's going on. What would help them? Ask them what would help. Say, how can we help you right now? I mean, one perfect practitioner told me there was a crisis situation. The police were all around. He was called in as a nurse. He talked to the person. The person said, well, if I could talk to my mom. So they they tracked down the mom, they got her on the phone. And the, this person who was, you know, in the super high crisis situation with, you know, <laughs> that was really quite dangerous, got talked down by their mother, right? And, and, you know, I use that just as an example. It's funny, it's nice, but it's real. Gosh, often people just want connection. They're scared, they're upset. And yes, they might seem a bit crazy to you, but talk to them, find out because even people labeled with schizophrenia still eat meals they have showers they have friends often they have better days and worse days you know you can talk to them and de-escalate and help and that's what i'd say we as a culture need to demedicalize this stuff again and get back to really saying hey what's going on how can i help who are your friends who can i reach out to what do you need do you need something that i can help hey let's go for a meal together whatever it is, you know.
0: Yeah. Yes. And I think it's important to like what you're saying, it's important to be able to thread the needle because I also I've had conversations with parents, for instance, whose kids have severe mental illness and are on the street and they're over 18 and the parents feel that they they have no way of protecting the child. I mean, that they they want they almost they they want their child to be taken in in some way but they don't want it to turn into a terrible situation. Like, I guess, I don't want to harp on this, but I think, like, if you get, okay, say that you know that you need to be admitted. Like, I want help. I need to be admitted to this hospital. Once you get in there, is there still a way of saying, like, can we do this right? Can I, you know, can you work with me? How do you get to that collaborative dynamic?
1: Well, my answer to that is the reality is There are certain jurisdictions have inscribed into law, literally word for word, if you disagree with the psychiatrist on the diagnosis and the treatment recommendation, we can switch you from voluntary to involuntary. That's the justification right there. And that is commonly used. So I I can only say it's a high-risk environment. It is very difficult to be sure that you're safe from being forcibly treated once you're in that environment. Because if you're disagreeing with what the psychiatrists say, they regard that as a lack of insight. Mm. So that's the risk. So more broadly, of course, I understand this and I try to talk about it in my book that Hey, like some people are really struggling and chronically struggling, and and in some cases, the family really does have their best wishes in mind. We have to question that at times, like I see lots of instances where actually the family did not have the best interests of that child in mind, and they were using forced treatment as a tool for control, so both of these things are going on. Nevertheless, in that situation, I, I sympathize I understand I know it 's very, very challenging and stressful, and difficult and and it's going on but what i just say to these people is you got to take the police off the table you got to take forcibly drugging these people off the table and get back to what really works. And I've talked with many family members who've witnessed what's happened to their children, their adult children, after years in the system, and they finally changed their minds about it too and said, okay, now I'm back to just really trying to build those relationships of trust where I can do what I can to help Keep my loved ones safe, and then live with some of the risk that they're presenting. Because I've seen that I I don't believe the system is truly helping anymore. When they've seen this play out for a decade, and in some cases they regret making the decision they did. So you know I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do or not to do. In the end, I know I probably sound like I am, but I want to respect that these situations are very complex, and I'm just encouraging people to be aware of the risks of putting someone into that forced. Treatment system and do what you can to continue to develop those relationships. And maybe it does mean that you yourself have to live with a higher level of risk in your loved one. But you know, I, I hope you know for their sake too and for yours that that you can live with it and continue to support them in that environment.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. And and I I also know of families that fit exactly what you just described. They would rather take the risk. And they understand sort of the contours of that person's temperament and personality more than anyone.
1: If I may, I want to take this in a slightly different direction too, because I find this a problem. Like it's a common place for us to go, right? We start talking about the most extreme, difficult to solve problems, and then use that as the analogy or the metaphor that we have to solve. And I say that's a little bit like, I don't like the violence comparison, So I want, but but it is a little bit like, looking at the problems in the criminal justice system and saying, and then highlighting like a serial murderer and going, that's the person we need to address, instead of recognizing that the vast majority of people in the criminal justice system are not serial murderers, they're burglars, you know, they're, they're people with, Drug use issues.
0: Nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah. yeah.
1: And we don't want to overshoot the mark. And what I show in my book is forced treatment is really overshooting the mark right now. Like, you know, the, a lot, a very large percentage of people who are being forcibly treated are nowhere near that kind of case, right? They're, they're whistleblowers, you know, in corporate environments. They're, they're school children just having stress and distress in their lives. You know, they're, they're people in workplaces who are just getting into conflict. With their managers. These are how these laws are being used. And and I really emphasize that we need to talk about that as a culture because we've created a very powerful tool in our mental health laws that are now being widely used and abused for all sorts of purposes that most people never envision.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. It's I think it's a really important book, and I'm really glad that you've brought this to the surface because. It's not something that I have thought a lot about, as may be clear from my questions, but it's just really incredible, the stories that you tell and and the research that you've done. Well, before I keep you a little bit longer for the bonus content, I just wanted to end on this question. What happened with, with your father? How did the rest of that story play out? Well,
1: he had, in the end, he did sort of recover on his own with my mother's support. We got him out of the system altogether. And he. Yeah. I had another good 10 years with my mother and, you know, I want to respect, he is a very private person. He was very generous to allow me to tell the story as, as far as I did for the book, uh, he would really have preferred never to share it. But he said to me one day, like, it's your story too. You know, it's our story as a family. So he you know, allowed me to share it. And so yeah, he's still alive. He's 92. My mother died. And that was a real devastating blow for my dad. She had been such a big part of his support structure. So, you know, he he's struggling today, you know, with aging and all of that that comes with that. But it, it's okay. I mean, I hang out with them. We watch shows together. We talk about it. You know, I, we still have a, a decent relationship. I, I'm worried about what some of the long-term repercussions of the electroshock might be. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. no one studied it. So I, I'm mindful of things that are going on and still watching that. But yeah, he, he had a good good 10 years with my mother prior to her death.
0: Well, congratulations on the book. It's uh, it's it's really good. It's extremely compelling, and your reporting is outstanding. And I hope it makes a difference. I hope.
1: Thank uh, you very much. It's been a great (laughs) conversation. I really appreciate your your uh, sensitivity to these topics. Because yeah, and and your recognition of it. Because you know, we're really talking about a huge population of people out there that don't have a huge voice, and I'm just trying to lift them up too. You know, hoping to.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to keep you. If you're listening and you want to hear more of this conversation, I'm going to ask Rob some personal questions. <laughs> uh, you can become a paid subscriber. Otherwise, this concludes the main interview portion. So Rob Wypon, thanks so much for joining me.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with journalist Rob Wypon. His book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships was recently published by Ben Bella. I should say that the endnotes for the book are so extensive that they were actually moved to his website. Uh, Rob talks more about that in the bonus version of this interview. But for now, I'm telling you that if you purchase the book in non digital form, you can go to his website, Rob Wipond, that's R O B W I P O N D.com, to get links to all the sourcing for the data he references and interviews he conducted. You can go to my Substack, .substack megandown.substack.com and become a paying subscriber to get access to the continuation of this conversation, which is really, really good as they are every week. In the meantime, I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.